Isaac, what is going on, my friend? Thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate you being here. Yeah. Yeah. Luke, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, uh, I want to give you a little shout out. Uh, I, I'd like to kind of give a mini intro before my guests give intros on the show. Uh, cause I, I can have a lot of people on the podcast and, um, you were always somebody in the back of my head. I was like, I got to get Isaac on. I got to get Isaac on. Uh, recently I had, uh, Megan, she's a type two diabetes coach and we had a great conversation, but for me personally, I just, the work that you do with the type one population and the way you disseminate information and the content that you put out and the value you give to people, it's just, you're one of my favorite accounts to follow on Instagram. So, um, it was only normal for me to want, you know, for want you to come on the podcast. So I appreciate you being here. Um, and thank you for just taking some time to, to come help, you know, people who follow me and, and listen to the podcast. I think they're going to find a lot of value today. So, um, give your little word vomit on your, you know, your story. I alluded to the fact that you had type one diabetes and work with that population, but, um, just tell us, you know, about you and your story and we can go from there, man. Yeah. 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 Thanks for that intro, Luke. I appreciate, uh, you know, you following along and, um, you know, happy to share a little bit more about me. So if the audience doesn't know, um, my name is Isaac Pullman. I have, you know, my main account is on Instagram, but I'm a dietitian and fellow person with type one diabetes, as Luke said. And, um, I think my, my story starts, you know, just how I grew up. I grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which if the audience isn't familiar, it's a very, uh, rural area. So I grew up in a town about like 4,800 people. So everybody knows everybody, you know, and, um, not, not a lot to do in the UP other than being outside. And, you know, if you don't like winter, it's probably not the the space for you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, we, we made it, uh, we made it work. And, you know, in, in, in the summer times, winter times, I was always outdoors. And I think, um, that's where my passion for health really first started is the impact like exercise and the outdoors can really make on a person, not only physically, but mentally, and uh, was very active in sports from a very early age. Uh, in particular, it was soccer for me. That was my main outlet. And um, during middle school and, and high school, I really started to get attention for that. And uh, I was kind of being uh, pushed towards, hey, Isaac, you should probably do this in, in college. I think you'd be good at it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, maybe I would. And so at that point, I think I, I felt that internal pressure to kind of have to live up to those expectations in a sense. And uh, that was a lot of stress on me, you know, and uh, I uh, not only in terms of uh, you know, mentally, but also the, the stress that I put on myself, um, just the way that I practiced and overtrained. And, you know, I would literally, you know, have a 90 match game of soccer. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be subbed out because I was one of the the, uh, you know, better players, you know, on the team. And so um, I ended up, you know, practicing shooting afterwards for a good another hour and a half. And so it was that like every single day, it was literally just academics and school, soccer and sleep. Like I, I wasn't into partying, hanging out with friends, you know, if, if my friends were opened up practicing with me, awesome. But this was my own thing. And I wanted to pursue it to the best of my ability and try to make the most of it. And I think my biggest regret was was having regrets that I didn't put enough into it. 
And so as a result of that mentality, I think I, I just overtrained myself and it really came to a head my sophomore year and um, in high school, actually. And it was a transition period. I just finished up soccer and it was, um, Luke, I don't know if you've been through this before, but it's uh, it was part of like um, my conditioning for basketball started. And, uh, you know, of course, there's all sorts of drills and like suicides where you're running up all up and down the court. And so it was just this perfect recipe where at that time, the stress of everything involved with, with soccer and sports and academics really came to a head. And I started to feel like less and less hungry. And now I know stress blunts appetite. Uh, but at that time, at that time, I didn't know. I didn't know that. And so, you know, after just a few bites of food, I would naturally feel full. And I was like, that's weird. What's going on? I'm typically the most hungry person in the family. And um, at that time, I was only like... 100 pounds or so soaking wet, uh, five, five, so string bean. And um, I really couldn't afford to lose weight. And I did during that, uh, you know, that transition to basketball and conditioning, I lost about 15 pounds. And that might not sound like a lot to some people. But when you're talking a 100 pound frame, like that is a significant amount of weight. So, uh, you know, people got scared and concerned. I thought I had an eating disorder, whatever. Um, but eventually they found out uh, at Mayo Clinic, which is one of the better hospital systems, or at least considered in the U.S., uh, that I have gastroparesis, which is a slow emptying of the stomach, oftentimes associated with type 1 diabetes, like a complication, if you will. But uh, I didn't have diabetes at that time. There's no abnormalities in terms of my hemoglobin A1C or blood sugar or anything like that. So um, they diagnosed me at that time. And I thought, okay, that's the end of it. Um, I was I was at that time very fatigued, though. I was still in that midst of recovering from that lack of food for so long. And um, it really affected me. Like in terms of sports, I couldn't get back to my normal energetic self. And it only you know, hit me in terms of my ability to play college soccer. And I did end up pursuing that dream. I went to a, a small D3 school, you know, it, it wasn't D1 like my dream was. It was D3. Um, but the time that I got there, like, the edge that I had in high school with my athletic ability and my my health at that time, like those were no longer there. And so I knew right away that, you know, I can't get away with this any longer. There is no edge that I still have. And um, the, the health piece of it was the one piece that was really dragging me down. And so I, I played for two years. I didn't really play though. You know, I was on the team, but didn't get much playing time. And I, I really saw the writing on the wall because my health was becoming worse. I was, um, I wasn't really good at academics anymore. Like I was getting below a 3.0 for the first time in my life. I was always a straight A student. And so my entire identity was gone. <laughs> I was no longer a good student. I was no longer good at soccer. And so what was I good at? And so it was a huge identity crisis uh, for me. And so um, that really parlayed in, in a good way to me advocating for my myself in terms of health. You know, I was at the time really low testosterone, low, low thyroid hormone, cystic acne, low energy, poor digestion, food intolerances, sensitivities, you name it, like I had it. And so these well-meaning doctors, you know, you know, while well-meaning, they weren't able to provide me with that support at that time. And so that really pushed me to advocating towards, you know, my health and me starting to see results. And that's what really developed that passion for health and, um, you know, really advocating for myself for support that I didn't get. And so I can go beyond from there, but, I, you know, I don't want to go, go too crazy with that. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think that was, I think that was really good. And I, I think. I share the same 
um, type of experience. I think we all experience high school and athletics differently, but a lot of people play sports in high school. And if you didn't like, that's okay too. You know, like there's plenty of time to play and to kind of develop these new habits and, and, you know, activities as you get older, but that internal expectation of, you know, trying to be perfect and trying to be the best that you can be, I think is shared, um, by most people when it comes to athletics. And I think a lot of that can depend on the coach, the teammates, the parents, like how you're raised. There's a lot of confounding variables on, you know, your outlook on what it means to be an athlete and to continue on like yourself at like maybe the next level. And I think a lot of times those tendencies that we develop young, you know, early on in our health are translated and carry into our adolescent years, our, you know, young adult years, our thirties, our forties. And unless you actually identify that or really, really look at the way that you were raised and how your, you know, internal brain operates, it's like, you know, you can get caught up in that tendency with literally everything you do. And and I think it's a double-edged sword because yes, it can, you know, uh, lead to maybe more motivation in some contexts, or you know your willingness to go put forth extra effort. But I think you could also exacerbate a lot of you know tendencies, this perfect perfectionist or all or nothing mentality um, with other things, especially when it comes to like your health and your fitness, right? And and that's kind of what we're talking about today is like your overall health and how we can help you become a healthier version of you, help you optimize your health you know, a lot of times your all or nothing mindset that is sometimes ingrained within you, whatever that looks like from your childhood or early on, mostly pertaining to athletics is what I'm referring to right now. But it's amazing how that can actually be a burden on some people and prevent them from actually getting to a place where they feel really good and confident and not feeling like this imposter their whole life because they're constantly working for this overarching goal that maybe in some contexts are not actually achievable, right? And, um, right. you know, maybe we aren't managing our expectations as well, or, or we're reaching for, for things that are, you know, maybe not conducive to what our life is actually like, right. And what might be best for us. So yeah, side tangent on that, but I think, uh, it, it, it sounds like you had these tendencies as a kid. I mean, you lost 15, almost 15% of your body weight, right? That sophomore year going into that basketball season, which is a fuck ton of weight, right? Especially for somebody who's growing, um, trying to reach peak development and being able to also capitalize on your performance goals at the time. You know, that's a crazy amount. And uh, I'd be curious if we pivot into when you were diagnosed, did you go like two years without being diagnosed at that point? Because it sounds like you got diagnosed with what gastroparesis that sophomore year or so, and then continuing on to D3 soccer and stuff still weren't feeling super well. The health was suffering. When did you get diagnosed yeah. with type one? Tell us the story behind that. And, and we can go into symptoms and stuff. I have that on my list of what I want to talk about today, but what were some sure. of the things that you experienced in addition to, to the weight loss and the gastroparesis and just feeling terrible all the time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the interesting thing is that didn't hit to later on. And so I go into my junior year, my senior year and during my undergrad. So this is still at Alma, um, where I'm off the soccer team, I'm focused on on academics. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing better in academics, I'm feeling a little bit better in terms of health. And I'm starting to think, oh, well, well, I should probably pursue this as like a career, like I'm passionate about this is something I grew up with my whole life, like, let's do this, let's find a you know, school that can can kind of parlay this and to like a nutrition degree. So I looked up, you know, I, um, my favorite school at the time was Michigan. And so it was like a dream school for me, good academics, good sports, you know, really good 
environment. I grew up around it. My, my family's from there. And so I thought, oh, that's that's a you know perfect spot. It's one of the top ranked public health schools in the nation. You know, why not? So I, I applied there and I get a rejection letter back. And I'm like, well, that's that's pretty bad. Like, what do I do now? Uh, I applied to a few other schools. I got in in those, but it was was Michigan that I was focusing on. And so I ended up writing a letter back to them saying, I, hey, you know, I understand, you know, like you have a certain process, but I also understand my experience and what I've gone through to get here. And uh, I explained that and uh, they really resonated with that. And they called me back and said, hey, Isaac, you know, we really related to your letter. Like, we want to accept you into this, um, into this class. I'm like, awesome. Like that's a, a life changing moment. And, you know, it's interesting about these decisions that you make and how they ultimately go into impacting your life and ultimately this, this diabetes diagnosis, because I went to U of M wonderful experience. Like it was uh, so much better than, um, than Alma. And it's, and I don't think it's, I don't want to put this on Alma. It was just the time of life that I was in at the moment and the struggles. Um, but I was in a, such a better place of health, had a lot of great friends around me. Uh, but I think I fell into similar tendencies as what I did, um, you know, growing up, you know, with the soccer, you know, overworking, overtraining. And so I, I think I, I still had a tendency to take on too much, you know, so I was working uh, a part time job. I was participating in entrepreneurship competitions. I was trying to build this business of, of health and coaching on the side. And I was going to grad school full time. And so it was it was a lot for me to kind of take that on, especially it, as I was still trying to get my health back. I wasn't quite there yet. Um, and so with that in combination and then, um, would also hit, and I think this kind of put it over the edge. I had a relationship that just went sour and it was a really big one in my life at the time. And, uh, I was basically like ghosted in a sense. And so, uh, that was, uh, hit a nerve with me, I think at that time. And, um, you know, that this, that's a straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And so around that time, I found it really interesting. I woke up one day. And I don't know if you, Luke, have you ever had those times where you really have to pee and you like hold it in for hours and hours and it's like painful. Well, I woke up with that kind of feeling and I was like, wow, that's really weird. I haven't felt that in a long time. And so I went to use the bathroom, you know, really, really long pee. And um, I started to notice I'm more thirsty. I'm drinking like gallons upon gallons of water. I'm still thirsty. And that was unusual for me. I was like, I'm usually the guy that doesn't drink a whole heck of a lot of water. I'm not really that thirsty. This is kind of interesting. And so I, I start tracking my intake uh, in terms of nutrition. I see that I'm out about 3,000 to 3,500 calories. And that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of calories. And I, I step on the scale. I step on the weight scales just to see where I'm at, you know. And I see that I've lost 10 pounds in a matter of a couple of weeks. So I'm like, something's up here. And I'm not sure what is. Uh, my first thought actually went to, do I have diabetes? Um, because these are all the symptoms that represent diabetes just based on my training and the fact that my grandmother had diabetes and she had the same exact thing happen to her. And I was like, um, no, I can't be it. I can't have diabetes here. Uh, it's got to be like the stress. It's got to be all the things that I'm doing. Like, you know, it, it can't be diabetes. And so I kind of waited out. Um, 
as I'm waiting this out, I start to feel super, super lethargic, sleepy after meals. I notice immediately after I have something with carbs, it just feels a sinking sort of sleepy, sluggish feeling. It's awful. And I'm like, I got to check this out. And so I went to my local Meyer, which is a grocery store, popular chain in Michigan. And I picked up a glucometer, which is a device that measures your blood sugar. And I thought, well, well, this could be a life-changing moment or it could be nothing. So go in to check my blood sugar that morning. And I see the number staring at, back at me is 293. And so if you're not familiar with blood sugar measurements, a normal fasting blood sugar is between 70 and about 99. And so mine was 293. And so immediately from that moment, I was like, yeah, I probably have diabetes. It's just a matter. Is this type one or is this type two? And so went on to the ER, they confirmed that uh, I did in fact have diabetes a week later, they confirmed it was type one through an antibody test. And so, you know, that's, that's how it went. And, you know, from there, um, uh, started learning as much as I can about diabetes. And, you know, I think there with the, and I'll wrap it up with this, Luke, I think there is initially a lot of shame with this. And I felt that. And I think particularly when someone uh, from your family or your friends asked you about, wow, you were diagnosed with diabetes. I thought you were skinny, man. I thought you were healthy. And I felt like super defensive about that. I'm like, no, no, this is type one. Like I didn't cause this. It's actually type two. That's the lifestyle one. And so I felt like so much shame. And then it, it made me think about the people that are diagnosed with type two and how they feel. Right. And so, um, just a lot of shame and, and tons of um, processing, accepting this diagnosis came along for the ride. And so I thought that was such an interesting thing. But I, I think the one thing that my parents really instilled with me is, you know, there are a lot of bad things that are going to happen. And, um, you know, you can kick, scream, process it um, and have a pity party for yourself. And I think there's a time and place for that. But there's also probably a time and place for turning a negative into a, a positive as best that you can and parlaying that to to uh, make it a strength. And that's what I did. And at that time, I think what we talked about, or like uh, before I was working a coaching business, I wasn't really sure who I wanted to work with. And, you know, I parlayed that into working with people with type one, type two diabetes and, you know, really being involved with that space. And I think as a result of this diagnosis, I built up a lot of trust in that community that I'm not just preaching all these facts and all these strategies, but I'm actually living it. Yeah. Holy shit. That's a lot. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I first have to say way pivot, but I've never heard of anybody overturning their admission results by writing a letter back to the university that they got rejected from. So I think that's amazing. And i so happy you shared that. Um, but what you alluded to is like, hey, essentially, like a lot of people's lives come to a, like a crossroad at some point, you know, and and maybe it's two paths that you could take three paths, four paths, like you will in inevitably be faced with a decision to do, you know, um, the, to walk down a certain path, so to speak, um, which could be a very life altering, you know, uh, decision. And, and it's not this like, um, consequential is like things can't be reversed, but you bet your ass I can change the trajectory with, you know, what you're doing, whatever the uh, capacity of that decision is like, whatever we're pertaining to health relationship stuff, your schooling in your, you know, in your own experience, um, even from like a body composition and health perspective, right? Like, Hey, am I choosing to acknowledge this or kicking the can down the road and, and trying my own things, you know, sort of speak. And I think that was really cool because it's almost like, that 
decision and your your ability to like really stand up and be an advocate for yourself translated to you also di- like self-diagnosing almost yourself with type 1 diabetes and then being able to follow through with whatever, you know, pre, uh, repercussions and diagnoses and further steps that you had to take from there. So I know it's, for me, it sounds like the hardest thing to do is like, Hey, get rejection letter. What can I do in response to that? Well, I'm going to write back to these fuckers and I'm going to see if I can get in and you bet your ass you did. Um, same thing with like, Hey, I feel terrible. I have gastroparesis. I've had all these symptoms. I'm going to test my blood sugar. Like that's just you advocating for yourself. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And I just want people to appreciate the fact that like, you are the only person that, you know, you can advocate for really at the end of the day. And it's, uh, it's so important because there's going to be so many situations in people's lives where if you don't speak up, you're going to get left off the bus sometimes. And, um, I think that was really cool. Like you were probably going to get diagnosed probably later down the road, but maybe you save yourself a lot of pain and suffering um, by really taking initiative and doing that. So I think a lot of times we have these histories of doing these hard things and that only helps us grow and build from there as cliche as that sounds. But I just wanted to highlight that because I think that was super cool. Um, But yeah, again, like going back to, to your diagnosis, it's like that shame and that like, I don't know if there was any guilt, like it is, did I cause this upon myself? You know, cause I've heard that story as well from a lot of people who have been diagnosed and you were diagnosed at maybe a little bit, you know, later age compared to somebody, you know, who's four years old or 10 years old who gets diagnosed with some of these things sometimes. Um, so that's a really interesting piece that I'd love to touch on actually is just like, when you get this diagnosis, like a lot of times when we look at like the stages of grief, it's like, Hey, you have this ignition, you know, initial um, diagnosis or this external stimulus that happens. And then you internalize that. Um, but eventually you get to a point where, what do we do about it? Right. And, and there's a lot of different decisions that could be made, you know, after we get through that first, like grieving, like acknowledgement phase. Um, and it sounds like you took the road of like, okay, well, this is reality kind of fucking sucks, but what do I need to do now? And that, that completely shaped your business outline you know, what you cared about in terms of like, you know, talking about nutrition and the population you serve. So like you said, there's a lot of silver lining that happened because of that, but that's not always the case, right? Like it's very difficult to come back from some of those things. So, um, I'm curious, what was your kind of initial reaction? How long did it take to get over that? And then maybe even sharing some of your clients experiences or people you've worked with, like, what are, what are common things that even somebody going through this or a parent listening to this, that's like, Hey, my, my child was diagnosed, not even type one diabetes, but with something else, like, what are the, what are like the things that we can really, you know, prioritize or really dive into within ourselves that can help pull us out of a place that let's be real is, is very unfortunate, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think there's in my mind, there's multiple layers to it. And I just want to shout out, you know, my my parents, first and foremost, like, the way that I was, uh, I was raised, I think they just did a wonderful job of instilling in me uh, a level of resilience and exposing me to situations that maybe weren't as ideal, like in the moment, they didn't really feel good. Um, because, you know, I, I think they're, you know, they're, they could have like pampered me in some sense and not exposed me to those situations where I didn't have to, to deal with losing or getting things wrong or uh, negatives with a, a grade that, you know, I, I failed a project or whatever, when maybe they could have stepped in and helped me, you know, get a, a better grade with that. But but they didn't. They helped me 
learn by going through something negative. And I think that built up my own resilience muscles. In addition to what you talked about with my health, you know, I had that first stage of gastroparesis and, you know, uh, having to adapt when I wasn't getting good grades in college when I was, that's what I, all I was used to. And I had to overcome the identity crisis of not being a soccer player anymore. So I think the first half of my first quarter of my life was all about building up that resilience. And I think that's what made me, I don't want to say ready for this situation, because I don't know if anybody's ready for a type one diabetes diagnosis, but I think it made me more resilient to that. And I remember being in the hospital. Um, my parents came because one of my friends told, I, I didn't actually tell my parents I was in the hospital. One of my friends told them that I was, and then, so they came down and, and met me and, um, I remember it, uh, it, 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 them being there affected me more than the actual diagnosis in itself. I could see the pain and the, um, the sadness on their face and that affected me a lot. And I remember kind of breaking down, um, you know, with my mom about it and, um, having that kind of pity party, feeling bad for myself. Um, but, um, after that, like, you know, I don't know if you ever had a good cry, Luke, but it was just one of yeah. those one of those moments where it um, it really helped to get me past that. It really helped me to accept that them being there comforted me, um, just you know being there and to listen. And uh, I think that was extremely helpful. Me making that transition to pity party to uh, okay, accepting this. What 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 can I do that's going to make the most of this situation? So having support, you know, um, and for, you know, children, for parents of their children were just diagnosed, you know, just being there for them, I think is one of the most important things that you can, you can possibly do. So uh, my parents were super influential with that. Now, you know, the other piece of it is uh, kind of the explanation to friends and family and the shame that's involved with that. Because like I said, I've had many family members and friends come up to me and, you know, uh, basically saying, man, I thought you were healthy, man, I thought you were skinny. Like, how did you get diagnosed with diabetes? Like, what's up with that? So um, there's there's that processing of like educating people around certain things and 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 me not wanting to kind of bash another audience that has like type two diabetes because I know how that feels and I I I feel like I can um, almost see their experience in my in myself a bit so I, I think it was a level of that but also you know in terms of of uh, you know, parents that have type one diabetes, I think for them, it's, it's, it's not something that you can see, right? You can't see it on their skin. Like it, it doesn't show up. It's, it's internal. And so I have, I worked with a lot of parents that asked me just simply like, how does a low blood sugar feel? Or how does a high blood sugar feel? Because they can't see it. And we fear what we can't see and we, we don't understand it. So I think, you know, having that understanding sometimes, or, or me telling them, like this is how this feels is validating so they, they can best support their, their, their child. So that is a, another piece of, um, of just a fear of that. Oh, I, I caused this on myself. Oh, I'm damaging myself by keeping my blood sugar high or literally every decision that I make is now influencing my longevity on this earth. Like that's, that's a deep, deep, deep thought, right? So that's the psychological piece that I see. 
um, even separate from the logistics of figuring out type one diabetes, because with type one, one of the biggest issues that I find is uh, people that, um, you know, they, they don't have quite an understanding of how to dose insulin. And that's no fault of their own. You know, I think with how we're, we're taught, again, while well-meaning, sometimes we're not given the time to sit with parents, to sit with children, to come up with a system for insulin dosing. And when we don't have a system, we're, we're left just guessing. And when we're left guessing all of a sudden, well, it makes type one diabetes a heck of a lot more difficult to manage because you're constantly having to make decisions to adjust. Oh, it's up. I got to take insulin. Oh, it's down. I got to drink juice or, or take snacks that can bring that back up. So it's constantly on the thought of their mind. And so I think that's what makes it super stressful for parents and children alike, because the child is not going to feel good, right? With high and low blood sugars, but the parent is not also not going to feel good knowing that they, they feel, I'm not saying they are, they feel like they're causing this for their, their children. They, they feel like they're causing them pain and they, they don't have a definitive system to go with that can make life a little bit easier at no fault of their own. And so it's just, it's, it can be a little bit messy at the start when they're navigating the psychological piece of it, but also the logistics of how do I work this in with real life? Yeah. Thank you for that. That was awesome. And I think that's a good transition into like, hey, what is type one diabetes, right? Because we've we've gone like I don't even know how long now. We people don't even know what type one diabetes some people is. So I'd love to go into that. Um, but you said something so important, um, or alluded to something that we could be so fucking stubborn sometimes. Like I say we because a lot of people have this tendency. It's like you know we uh, we have this expectation that we could figure everything out on our own, or um, our ego makes a lot of decisions for us. Uh, or we have this sense of pride that can get in the way of us actually asking for help or actually seeking resources or let alone just telling your parents that you're in the fucking hospital with something that's pretty life-changing. Right. Um, and I know that's not the intention. It's almost just maybe this sense of embarrassment or, um, this thing that it's like, Hey, I, I don't want to be a burden on some of these other people's, but like, man, you got to, you got to appreciate the fact that you don't have to do this shit alone. Right. And if you develop a social circle, if you have, you know, fortunately if you have parents like yours and and they're there for you and they're every step of the way, great people who don't have that resource or that luxury, like relying on friends, on other family members, on people in their life that can help bring you through that initial stage and then help make that process easier to deal with as you continue to get older. It's just so important. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you're, you said, it's like, Hey, how do I describe this to people? How do I, you know, uh, go forth my life, uh, trying to explain to people how I have to live my life going from here on out. And the unfortunate truth is people just don't get it, you know, and it's not their fault for not getting it, but there's just this, this overwhelming like sensation of like, Hey, I can't really explain to you what I'm going through. I'm going to do my best and, and we'll have these conversations around it. Um, and you don't have to get people like to feel sorry for you or all these things, but just understanding that like, Hey, somebody doesn't have the same experience. They aren't going to get it and that's okay. But what, what can I get out of this and how can I help them meet me at a place where, you know, we can help each other, or maybe I can help somebody understand or appreciate something. So if they go through another experience with somebody else, they're more equipped to handle that information. Um, so yeah, it's very multifactorial, but thanks for sharing your experience. Cause I know a lot of people have had that experience as well. And, uh, I think it's, it's, it's honestly just part of the whole process of, of being diagnosed with something like type, 
one diabetes. So um, if you have any responding thoughts on that, great. Yeah. Not let's talk about what type one diabetes um, is compared to type two. Yeah, I actually do. And it's the thought around the, the support because everything up into that life I did on my own. Like if you, if you heard my story in terms of soccer, I did that on my own. It wasn't something that somebody else prompted me to do that. Um, you know, in terms of health, it wasn't somebody else prompted me to that. I did that. And so it was like, I think there's something in the subconscious that says like, if something has worked, if you're, if you can't get that support from other people, doctors or soccer coaches, and you get it from yourself, well, that's the main mechanism that you're going to rely on moving forward. And so that was my frame of mind that, okay, I can't rely on other people to help me. I have to do it myself. And so that's what comes to mind with type one diabetes. And uh, it's a very harsh reality. And I think for some people takes can take therapy to, to figure out. And, you know, I, I have a therapist, I go to therapy, but it uh, it's a uh, it's a very deep thought and how you make decisions is ultimately a lot of it does go back to childhood and that shows up in exactly what you, you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. And then again, like this type one diabetes is, is vastly different from type two, but I think a lot of times people just put a blanket over both of them together and assume it's the same thing. Uh, right. right. Like people know maybe there's a slight difference, but not understanding the mechanism, it, it makes it hard to differentiate between the two, you know, and maybe that's where some of this confusion comes in when you're like, Hey, I, I have diabetes and people are like, Oh, you're skinny and you're fit and you played soccer, you know, whatever it is. It's like, you should be healthy. It's like, there's just this disconnect with what it actually is. So, um, a couple of few episodes, we talked about kind of the process of insulin resistance and, um, type two diabetes, pre-diabetes type one is very different, but I'd love for you to just kind of Tell us what that is and uh, um, some of the notable differences between the two. Right. Yep. Yep. And it all goes back to the origin of how the disease develops. So for something, and I hate referring to it to it as disease, I'm going to refer to it as a condition. Uh, so type one diabetes is a condition where it's a problem, an issue with the immune system versus type two, it's an insulin resistance issue. And we can go into what that means exactly, but the difference has to do with the origin. So with type one diabetes, it's basically described, and we can get into this a little bit later on, but the immune system taking out defective cells in an area, you know, for type one diabetes, it's the pancreas. Uh, it takes those out through the use of antibodies. And as a result of taking out those components, what happens is the body doesn't produce insulin. So it is in fact, what's called an insulin deficiency, meaning you don't have or are producing enough to keep blood sugar stable. So as a result, blood sugar rises. And so with this individual, you'll have a higher A1C, meaning a, a high average blood sugar over the course of three months, which will show up. And that will be, you know, typically for most people above like a six, we also have a higher blood sugar, which will be above like a 125. Typically for most people with type one uh, diabetes that are diagnosed, they'll be in the 200s, 300s, 400s, 500s. So pretty high, pretty high up there. Um, and then this is the, the component that's really unique to type one diabetes. They'll have a positive antibody test and they might have a few positive antibody tests. For me, it was something known as the GAD65 antibody test, but there are others as well. There's ICA, there's uh, IAA, there's IA2A, a lot of complex terms here, but uh, either way, there will be some positive antibody associated with insulin production in addition to a high A1C, in addition to a high fasting blood sugar 
right? And for many, many of these individuals, since it is like their blood sugar is extremely high, typically, it's a little bit more severe, many of these individuals will have more harsh symptoms. So kind of how I described, like frequent urination, uh, unquenchable thirst, weight loss, extreme fatigue after eating, many individuals will present with that early on. And if you're unlucky, um, you'll get something known as DKA, which is a fancy abbreviation to describe diabetic ketoacidosis, which is basically due to a lack of insulin. And because you don't have insulin to process carbs, the body is an adapting machine, it will go to the next best option, which will be fats, which actually is a great parlay into carbohydrates, but that's a later, later story. Um, you, your body starts processing carbohydrate or I'm sorry, fats a, a lot more, and it's doing it excessively because it simply does not have insulin or any other choice. And if it doesn't continue to uh, provide a consistent energy source, like we die, like simply put. And so it adapts by processing fats. What's produced with that fat production is our ketones, like ketogenic diet, similar to that, but it's very excessive, like a lot of ketones. And so when we have a lot of ketones, typically people have nausea and vomiting and can actually pass away from something called diabetic ketoacidosis. So very extreme, right? So that's, that's type one diabetes. Now type two diabetes is a little bit opposite of the spectrum. It has to do with insulin resistance. And, you know, I'm not sure that the talk that you had with the other coach too, but I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about similar things with insulin resistance. It's not so much that we lack insulin. In fact, for many people with type two diabetes, they actually have an overproduction of insulin. And um, Luke, I almost compare it to like holiday mail. Like my dad's a postal worker. And um, during the holiday season, like you'll, they'll hire on like some temporary workers that, you know, pass along mail and packages and that sort of thing. And so we have not only a lot of postal workers, but we have a lot of mail to deliver, presents, letters, packages, all that sort of thing, right? And so you can almost think of these postal workers as being the insulin that delivers the carbohydrates. You can almost think of these packages, these letters, the holiday mail as being the carbohydrates that are delivered. And so let's just say, for example, that this mailbox is full, it's full of these packages and letters and this postal worker is trying to deliver, but it can't fit them in. There's nowhere for it to go. And so what ends up happens are they, they take those packages back, those letters back. And that represents that rise in blood sugar that people with type two diabetes see. So the problem is not here they, they lack insulin. They actually have too much insulin, you know, circulating. The problem is they can't utilize it well. They can't get, make that transition from passing carbohydrates from the bloodstream to the cell. And so it presents in a similar situation where as a result, blood sugar is high, A1C is high, but you won't typically see those drastic symptoms. Typically it's a step up. Like people go from uh, pre-diabetes to type two diabetes or hypoglycemia, low blood sugar to pre-diabetes. You know, it'll occur in a step-by-step fashion. Whereas type one is very, very progressive. It goes really quickly. Yep. Heck yeah. Thank you for that detailed breakdown. That killed it. Like just overly simplifying that again. It's like, Hey, Type one diabetes is your body has uh, is unable to produce insulin to the fact that hey you can't get that glucose that's hanging out in your blood into the cells. So that's where you need these exogenous sources of insulin to be able to like you know dose that, administrate that into yourself so you can keep those blood sugars normal. Where uh, type two diabetes is 
insulin is still being produced yet your cells have become resistant to that insulin and therefore blood sugar is not able to be disposited or, uh, sorry, disposited, uh, deposited into those cells and therefore blood sugar can continue to rise Two very, com- uh, completely different mechanisms, honestly. Um, right. type two, like you said, being something that can accumulate over time, maybe excess energy, um, you know, inability to like store more energy because your cells are already full. A lot of things I will link everybody back to the other podcast. Cause we hammered that hard. Um, nice. but kind of going back to type one diabetes, like, okay, we have this insufficient or this non-existent insulin production going on. What's the next step. Right. And, and how do we manage that now? Um, it's, as you imagine, it's somebody is com- taking on what their body would normally be able to do and completely manually doing that now, which is a big burden and, and let alone the consequences. If you do not do that on your health over time. Right. Um, right. so what is kind of the next step in terms of like testing, um, we right. can talk about some devices that have made this easier for people can bring in, you know, what you've experienced and how you manage that. But what's next after we get this type one diabetes? Cause again, I think part of this podcast, I want people to really appreciate kind of the complexity of this, but also the simplicity and how it could be, um, you know, not, not as much of a burden as what you might think it might be over time. Right. Cause you can earn your right, right. to do that, but it, it requires a lot of work and understanding up front to be able to appreciate all of this. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And, and think we, thankfully we do have some tools that make that a little bit easier now than in my grandmother's days. Like I remember her pulling out her supplies and she literally had the, the vial of insulin and the syringe and the old glucometer. Um, like I remember all that and she didn't have access to a, like a continuous glucose monitor, which monitors your blood sugar for uh 24 seven all across the day. So it's, it's, it's really interesting how things have changed. And now we have insulin pumps and now we have insulin pumps that integrate with a continuous glucose monitor. And so I can talk a little bit more about those types of things, but it's the advancements I think today have made it so much easier, not to say that it's ever easy. I want to make that clear, but it's, it makes it easier to manage than for someone like my, my grandmother who had to work with what she had to work, work with. So, um, you know, when it comes to type one diabetes initially diagnosed, there are a few different routes that you can go. You can go what's called MDI or manual, um, manual dosing, basically where you're taking multiple daily injections, hence the, the term MDI, and over the course of the entire day. And so when I say multiple daily injections, what I mean is you're taking uh, insulin with each meal and typically like a long acting insulin to kind of cover your base for the, for the majority of the day too. And so typically it's, it's insulin with meal times, but also either in the morning or the end of the day to kind of, you know, cover your, your baseline there. So you can go in that direction. Uh, for most people, it's a little bit more, um, more challenging. I think I would say, um, it's a little bit less automated because you have to think, Oh, I got to dose my insulin. I got to remember that. And especially when you're first diagnosed, that's not uh, the easiest thing to always remember. So there is that direction that you can go into the other direction that is at least at first, a little bit more complicated would be the insulin pump. And so insulin pump is something that delivers insulin, kind of drips it over the course of the day to you. It, it simulates what a long acting insulin would do, but it's automated in a sense. You plug in your rate and you, you don't think about it, right? As long as your blood sugar, you know, is, is within good standing, it, you, it's really not something that you think about. 
The only time that you would think about insulin dosing is when you have a meal. So very similar to multiple daily injections where you would take your insulin with your meal, you would basically pull up your insulin pump, you would type in the carbs, you would type in your current blood sugar, and you would hit the, the dose button to uh, to dose for that particular meal. So it's a little bit more automated. It calculates, it calculates your uh, exact insulin dosage down to the 10th the degree. So you know, very, very accurate. And it takes into consideration your, your current blood sugar. And so that is, that is very helpful. And, and now today that system is even more helpful because you'll see pumps like the Omnipod, it's a brand of pump, and you'll see pumps like Tandem, which is another brand. They actually sync together with something called a continuous glucose monitor. And so what a continuous glucose monitor is something that's kind of attached to your body and it measures your blood sugar over the course of, you know, uh, 24 hours, right? And so for many, many uh, CGMs, it'll automatically check your blood sugar every few minutes. And that will show up like on your, your um, continuous glucose app. And it will say, hey, blood sugar 106, blood sugar of 250, you know, whatever it is. And the interesting thing with these continuous glucose monitors is that when they communicate with the pump, the pump will actually adjust based on how your blood sugar is trending. So let's just say that for ticks and giggles, my blood sugar is jumping up, you know, past 180 at this point. The pump, based on my settings, will start kicking in. It'll start kicking out more and more insulin to kind of reduce that spike, right? So that is extremely helpful, especially if you have young children around that, you know, maybe uh, ate a little bit more, maybe snuck a snack like uh, many, many do. Um, and so it could kind of provide a nice buffer. Same thing if your blood sugar is shooting low. Let's just say that you're the uh, you're doing a lot of activity, maybe doing some walking or running or, or weightlifting, um, and your blood sugar kind of drops on you. What the pump will do, it was it will kick off at a certain point, like it will stop dripping insulin to you, and as a result, you know you you could still have a low, but it would be a lot less than if it would continue to drip that insulin to you. And so these are nice buffers, especially of those that are what I call are more brittle, meaning their blood sugars go up and down, up and down, are very sensitive. So really a great advancement for those that, um, that have roller coaster blood sugars and can ultimately prevent some of those extreme lows or extreme highs for, for different individuals. Um, and then I can go over into the more specifics with like basil and, and bolus, but hopefully that gives you just a general picture of some of the treatment options at first. Yeah, I love that. And I think... Uh that second, you know, when you have kind of this automated system doing it for you, like it, that's as close to a miracle as we, we have, right. Especially in the health and fitness space. Um, I say fitness space, but just the health industry in general is we now have these devices that literally take over your body's job that it's no longer doing for you. And we're relying on these devices to be able to continuously check your blood sugar, continuously respond to what those blood sugar levels are doing. And just making this process a lot easier compared to even five, 10 years ago um, when we were just doing more manual dosing, right? And it just goes to show you how fucking quick the the health and the kind of the device industry when it comes to health and and especially in this population can move. Um, I I was a counselor at a when doing my dietetics rotation. We did like a type one diabetes camp. It was like the most life-changing experience that um 
<laughs> that I ever got to do, especially on that internship rotation. Um, but you get, essentially get to spend a week with these kids, helping them check their blood sugars, um, counting the carbs and all the meals that we provided for them. I say we, but the the camp provided for them so they can respond and and you know do their bolus feeding and all these things in response to that. Um, and then being able to help them manage that, check their blood sugars through the night for the young ones who were unable to do that. Um, and just immersing yourself into that was one of the most like really profound experiences that I've had just as a dietitian in general. So I definitely get the, uh, the advancements and how really cool this is and, and people who are utilizing these services or who have dreams to have some of these, you know, uh, devices and technology on them one day, it's like, we got to keep dreaming and keep moving towards there. Cause we're getting closer. Um, but right. going back to kind of the manual dosing, I'd love to just touch on, um, this idea of like counting carbs and, you know, how do we, how do we dose insulin in response to that? Um, and then what happens if our, you know, if our blood sugar is still elevated or we maybe miscalculated or it's not responding the way we should, because all of this we have to remember is very individualized and in people who have diabetes, you're working with their endocrinologist and they're doing the insulin dosing and the ratios. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into it that we can't just cover today, but, um, I'd love to just talk about the basics of that to just kind of give a little bit of insight of like the old fashioned way of doing this that a lot of people had to do and, and continue to have to do right now, you know? Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and there are really four steps that I look at when it comes to the basics of insulin dosing. Um, before we even get into like counting carbohydrates, uh, what I talked about with like the long at acting insulin, and then um, the uh, drip insulin that is getting with the someone is getting with insulin pumps, that's known as basal dosing. And so it's the consistent insulin that you receive, no matter what right? It's either from a long acting source of insulin. If you're on multiple daily injections, or if you're on a pump, it's the insulin that it's dripped to you over the course of every hour, right? And so in order for us to get really good blood sugars, we, in my opinion, we need to start with basal first, because if we don't have the basal rate correct, ultimately it's going to make blood sugars uh, a lot more challenging to, to navigate, especially when you encounter meals, because if it's, uh, let's just say if it's too high, meaning you're receiving a ton of insulin, you're naturally going to have lows during the middle of the night and not know why. If your if your basal rate is too low, you're going to spike up more quickly after meals because you haven't had a baseline of insulin over the course of the entire day. And so getting this within a good solid range is going to make those reactions at night or with meals a heck of a lot easier to manage, right? And so what I look at it as basal is not the insulin that helps to keep your blood sugar down. It's the blood sugar that uh, it's the insulin that helps to keep your blood sugar stable. So Luke, let's just say that I had a blood sugar of um, before I went to bed, let's just say I had a blood sugar of 200, right? That's considered, you know, fairly high, you know, for someone with, with type one diabetes, but let's just say I had that at, at, in the middle of the night. And in the morning, I also had a blood sugar of around like 210. That would be considered good when we're talking about basal because it stayed the same right? It's not meant for blood sugar to kind of come down with the basal dosing. It's meant to keep your blood sugar stable. And so if that were me, if, if that were all things considered starting off, that would mean our, my basal rate is probably in a good position because it's maintaining me over the course of the night. It's not dropping down. It's not going up. It's sustaining me. And so that is a good sign that your basal is within a good standing, right? 
but let's just assume that you got that down. You're 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 stable during the course of the night, which is a good sign that your basal is is on point. The next piece would be looking at your uh, what, what I call your carb to insulin ratio. And so it's a fancy term. All that it describes is how much insulin it takes to keep your blood sugar stable after having a certain amount of carbohydrates, right? So for every one unit of insulin, my current carb ratio is about 11 carbs. Meaning if I were to eat 11 carbs, it takes about one unit of insulin to keep my blood sugar stable within a good solid range, okay? So people can do this a little bit differently. When someone starts out, what I would recommend is being a little bit more precise. So if you can have like a food logging app, if you can have measuring spoons and uh, measuring cups, if you can have maybe a food scale, because that allows them to see, okay, what is one cup of pasta, one cup of rice, one cup of cereal, or one cup of fruit? What does that actually look like? And uh, I don't know if you've seen this in your clients, but you know, when they're starting out, they don't they don't really understand what what maybe a cup is and that no fault of their own. Like it, it's hard to, to know if you've never done it before. So it, it takes a learning of, of what an actual you know portion size is and what a cup, what a half a cup, fourth of a cup looks like. So that's important to kind of get that experience first because you get the know-how. And the reason why I say that's important is because it makes it a lot easier to transition. Let's just say that you want to go a rush to a restaurant, or let's just say that you want to go to a friend's house or a family, uh, a family gathering. Like for most people, they're not going to carry around their measuring spoons or, or scale with them. And um, there's there's a certain stigma and probably in doing that too. Um, especially for the younger crowd. So if you can get good at estimating, okay, what does a cup look like? What does a half a cup look like? It's going to make it so much easier when you get to those times where you don't have access to that, where you you naturally know what a half a cup or a cup looks like. So you can properly estimate your carbs while still being successful with your blood sugars. So I'd say precise first, and then you can go all based on hand measurements or based on feel because you just get so used to it. You, it becomes so routine. So initially it is a bit of work, but the more that you can practice it, the, uh, the less imprisoned that in my opinion, you'll feel as you move off and get more, more social. So I, I would say, you know, figuring that out first, uh, looking at uh, different portion sizes and getting, getting used to what that feels like for you would be the, the next step, right? And so that can help to keep blood sugars within a good solid range. Now, the other piece of this is something called a, a pre-bolus. And so again, fancy term to just describe insulin that's taken before you eat. And so the interesting thing about insulin is when it's injected, it takes time for it to reach the bloodstream. And so let's just say that I were to have a meal right now and I didn't take insulin. That meal typically for most adults, I'll say, will reach their bloodstream before that insulin will. And as a result, they're, even if they took the correct dosage, even if their insulin to carb ratio was on point, if they, they ate before they took that insulin, their blood sugar is gonna rise out of range, right? And it'll stay like that or it will come down maybe hours later. So there is an importance with delivering that insulin and kind of matching that so that by the time that you eat, that food reaches the bloodstream at a similar time as the uh, as the insulin does. And that will help to avoid uh, highs. But also, you know, if you, in terms of timing, you know, if you take your pre-bolus, let's just say an hour before you eat, 
well, you're going to take your blood sugar before you get something in your stomach. And so it's important in terms of the timing of that and figuring out what works best for you. For most people, it's probably going to be around 10 to 15 minutes prior. But again, it depends a little bit on the person around the, the type of meal that that you're, you're having there. So that is another crucial aspect that can make um, blood sugars a heck of a lot more difficult to deal with if they're not incorporating that pre-bolus factor. All right. Um, the last piece, Luke, before I wrap up here is the correctional factor. And so that is basically, let's just say I had a high blood sugar for whatever reason after a meal, maybe I miscalculated my carbohydrates. The correctional factor says, you know, what uh, what is the impact of one unit of insulin to my blood sugar? Meaning if I take one unit, how, how much does that decrease my blood sugar? And let's just say that for whatever reason, I had a, um, a 250 blood sugar and I want it to be, my target is around hundred, let's just say for easy math. If my blood sugar, if one unit decreases my blood sugar by 50 points, right? That's about three units they have to take for a correctional to get that back down to the target range. And so that's what I'll take in addition to what I dose for in terms of carbs and what kind of meal that I'm having. All right. And so that helps to kind of bring that blood sugar back down while supporting the food that I'm, I'm also eating. So that is the last piece that I would look at, but it's important to not only address each of these, but do it in, a, in the right order so it can make uh, your blood sugars a lot easier to, to manage. Yeah. Heck yeah. And, and listing all of that out, like you realize how much goes into this, right? And that's not to scare the shit out of people. It's more so to just help us people with type one diabetes without just a greater appreciation for what our bodies actually do on a, on a day-to-day basis and how it responds to meals for us. Um, and then the effort it might take to do that if your body is unable to continue doing that. Um, but really what I heard from that is like, there's a big balancing act here, you know, and, and it really does require some trial and error in the beginning. And, and that's kind of the reality of it. It's like you, you figure out how your body responds to certain foods and timing of foods and how much insulin you're taking. And, and there's a lot of things that you learn by doing, right? Like, it's just how we right. do everything is like, you could read the perfect book and, you know, talk, talk to your doctor and have the perfect ratios, but what is it doing on a day-to-day basis? That's where you learn the most, just like everything else in life when it comes to our health and our fitness and everything that we're doing, you know, from a health standpoint, get in the arena and actually do the thing instead of like trying to be perfect with everything all the time because right. life's going to slap you in the face. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll add one thing onto that, Luke. I think many people are scared to experiment. They're, they're scared to be wrong because, you know, there's a fear of, of getting things wrong, like on a test. And it goes back to subconscious, I think a bit too, but also the fear that they're going to damage themselves in the process. But unfortunately with type one diabetes, it is, there is a little bit of trial and error and there are mistakes that need to be made. But the thing about mistakes is they're, they're not mistakes. If you, if you learn from them, if you, if you take the gold nugget of, okay, that happened, well, why did that happen? Like, let's reflect on why that could have been the case. And if you can take the gold nugget out of that, well, you're not going to make that mistake again, or it's going to be less likely that you'll make that mistake. And so that is such a big part of this process is being willing to make the mistake because ultimately that's going to lead you to a much better spot than just glossing over it, forgetting about it, and then just making the same mistake over and over and over again. Yep, exactly. And that's where like building that foundation and and really just understanding like the fundamentals or the principles of a lot of these things comes into play. 
I like how you said, hey, maybe we utilize food tracking and, and we actually measure food and weigh out what a portion of cereal looks like in the morning or how many carbs does this banana that I'm eating have? Because most people have no idea what that is. And it's very similar to people maybe trying to change their health or their physique who don't have type 1 diabetes, right? It's like awareness will always always build you know, change and, and be able to help you appreciate what you're doing and then what we need to change from that. Um, and then again, like you said, being able to do it without that tool one day, I think is always has to be in the back of our minds and the ultimate goal here, like you relying on building or bringing a food scale to every, like, you know, vacation that you have, like really isn't going to be realistic over the long run. So again, it takes, it takes just putting the effort in upfront and being able to just embrace, like you said, being able to fail a few times or to really learn from what the mistakes that you've made so you can become more resilient and then just more appreciative of, you know, what it takes to do this without all these other resources and, and tools that you might use with that. And going alongside that, okay, we have all these insulin dosing. There's a lot of things that we need to think of maybe before, during, after the meal from a diet standpoint. What are, what are some of the things that we should also be thinking about? Because then now you hear people say, okay, well, blood sugar is high. That's not good. I'm just going to cut out carbs altogether. Right. And that will, that will help me just prevent those spikes from happening. Like, um, that's one example, right? There, there's a million of them that we could bring up, but it's like understanding that like these rises and decreases in your blood sugar are completely normal for the healthy person, for a person with type one diabetes. It's just how we respond to that and what your body's doing to correct that. Um, is the difference between somebody who has type one diabetes and somebody who has a body that's doing it for, for them already. Um, but what are some like diet considerations and things that we should start thinking about in terms of like blood sugar regulation, decreasing the amount of like increase or spike. I hate the word fucking spike, but I'll say it, but like how high that blood sugar response is after a meal. What are some things that we're thinking about and that we need to kind of keep in the back of our mind as we're creating meals and as we're going through, you know, our day to day from a nutrition front. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. It's like, I think it's a loaded one at that because yeah. there are so many different philosophies, particularly with the rise. And, uh, I think as you said it with the continuous glucose monitors, um, with the, the normal population of folks that just want to lose weight. Um, and so it's, it's created, I think a little bit of interesting ex expectations. I'll say it that way. Um, and I think false expectations at that, because, when we look at, let's just say someone in the context that doesn't have diabetes, you know, if we look at the recommended ranges for someone like that, they, they recommend 70 to, to 99 pre-meal or fasting, like when you wake up blood sugar and then post-meal about one or two hours later, less than 140. And for someone with diabetes, you know, recommended target range is 70 to 130, a little bit more flexible, uh, less than 180, one to two hours after the meal. And so what do you notice about both of those ranges? Well, the, the post meal is a little bit higher than, than the pre-meal. And that's not just for kicks and giggles, so to speak. It's there's, there's a reason for that. And, you know, what, what could possibly be the, the reason for that? Well, um, if we have the false expectation that everything should be a flat line, then we're going to think that we're a failure or we're going to think that if we see a bump up in blood sugar, we're doing things wrong. Right. So, you know, what, what ends up happening, I think, for um, for many people is they adopt that expectation that it should be like that for them too, not understanding that, you know, there's a reason why there is a bump up. And so if we understand like 
for any measurement, let's just say our, our heart rate, if that were to flatline, that wouldn't be good. We'd probably be dead, right? <laughs> there needs to be some natural fluctuations. If I were to uh, Luke, start doing jumping jacks right now, get up and start doing jumping jacks, my heart rate would go up, my blood pressure would go up. Now, would we say that's bad? Or would we say that that's adapting to the circumstance that's at B, you know, I'm exercising because if that adaptation did not happen, what would happen is I would pass out. I would collapse on this floor because blood flow would not be getting to my brain or back to my muscles to be able to facilitate that exercise, right? So there's a reason that adaptive response happens. So if we take that example back to blood sugar, what could be the possible benefit for blood sugar raising after meals? And I need to first put this into context too, because I'm talking about a rise in blood sugar, not a huge spike, as you might say, where it's spiking at 200, 300, 400. Like that's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to a natural sort of bump up after meals. So why, why would that be beneficial? Well, we have to view this in the context of our health as a whole, not outside the blinders that I think we all can be in the diabetes space of just blood sugar. So when we think about the context of the body, what ends up happening with that rise in blood sugar, there's something really, really crucial that happens, and it has to do with the liver. The liver kind of soaks up that extra glucose from the bloodstream and like a sponge almost in a way, and it stores it for later use. And this is super important. The liver is kind of like... Um, I don't know, Luke, how you grew up, but I had like a, a carb pantry at my house. I had like cereals and potatoes and rice and crackers Red and cookies, all the, all, yep, the, exactly. yep. <laughs> all, the, all the good stuff, right? Um, in your body, in, in the liver, it has the same sort of thing. It's called glycogen, just a fancy term, but just think about it like a carb pantry, carbs for later use, essentially. And so the reason why that's super, super important is it helps to prevent low blood sugars, so it can create kind of that buffer from you having a low. And by doing that, it also takes stress off the body because when you have a low blood sugar, the body doesn't have enough energy. And so it dies if it doesn't have enough energy. And so what does it do if you're, you're not feeding it, if you're not correcting it, it will resort to stress hormones to break down our own tissues to bring that blood sugar back up. And so by having that glycogen on hand, having those stored carbs, helps to prevent that process. So there's less overall stress in the body, which is good for a multitude of reasons. But one of the most significant reasons is something I haven't mentioned yet. And so glycogen also plays a huge role in activating thyroid hormone. And so that might sound complex, but I can break it down to make it a little bit more uh, user-friendly, if you will. So thyroid hormone is something that's released from the, the thyroid gland and it helps to power metabolism. It's, you know, what that's the most popular thing, but it helps to facilitate energy, good digestion, sleep. It literally affects every single cell in the human body. Broda Barnes, brilliant physician in like the 1960s, 70s, found out that the thyroid affects every single cell in the body. And if we think about every single cell, that's a lot of functions, right? That's mental functions, depression, anxiety, that's physical energy, digestion, that's lab work, cholesterol, even blood sugar are impacted by the state of our thyroid, right? But the interesting thing about thyroid hormone is much of it is released in its inactive form, meaning it's not usable. It's kind of like this guys, like Luke, I don't know if you buy supplements or you know, protein powders or capsules or anything like that, but correct me if I'm wrong, there's typically like a plastic seal on them, right? 
you know, they need to open up to get access to that supplement. Well, that's kind of what inactive thyroid hormone is. There's a seal on it that needs to be broken, right? And so what breaks this seal? What allows this thyroid hormone to be usable, to be active, so we can get the mental, physical, lab work benefits of it? Well, there needs to be glycogen in the liver to do that, which takes carbohydrates in the diet. And guess who is the population with the lowest glycogen levels? Well, it's people with diabetes. It's people with blood sugar issues. Because when they have blood sugar issues and blood sugar is bouncing up and down, we use up a lot of that glycogen. And so that's not there. And so it's no surprise that many people with type 1 diabetes, diabetes have issues with thyroid health because of this exact reason. And so if we we don't understand that, though, if we're just thinking that, oh, carbs spike blood sugar, that's the only that's the only paradigm, that's the only view that we're going to see, not seeing that there's a reason for this bump up in blood sugar. And it's a huge reason at that. Yeah, that's amazing example. And it's, uh, yeah, it just goes to, to, to show that like, as a society, I think we just get in the, the routine of like, you know, getting into the weeds and, and missing the forest or whatever that, uh, that analogy is, right. It's like, we focus on these one things and then that really blinds us to everything else that's going on. Uh, and really in a lot of times I see is more of a detriment because one from a, um, a relationship perspective with food. If we hammer the low carb kind of the philosophy right now, um, being afraid to eat carbs, being afraid of your blood sugar going up for both a type one or type two diabetic, or just a normal human. It's like, that's just, we have a finite amount of mental energy and, and stress that we can put towards our nutrition and the food that we eat. And a lot of times that mindset is doing harm or at least more harm than it is doing good for us. And yes, there might be some benefits of maybe reducing, you know, super ultra processed foods and, and being able to, um, shift people into wanting to eat more vegetables and more proteins and all these other beneficial things that can come from that. But if your intent of doing those things comes from a place of scarcity or you being afraid to eat a carbohydrate, we really got to reassess like what you, you know, what you deem is important and, and what approach you're taking with your nutrition. Um, and I love the fact that you alluded to like, Hey, this is very normal. Like going up to 400, you know, after your, your, your meal is not normal, right? We're not talking about that, but seeing that rise to 180, maybe even 200, depending on the person, all things that can be managed and is part of a normal blood sugar response to eating meals. Um, but where people I see just again, get, confused. And again, maybe it's just more of the marketing and the NutriSense and all this shit that you see out there now is like, people are afraid to eat carbs because they see their blood sugar go up and people are telling them that that's bad. But I loved your analogy of like you getting up and doing jumping jacks, like your cortisol probably is going to come up. Your your blood pressure is going to come up. Your heart rate is going to go up like all things that might be quote unquote bad. Um, but we cannot extrapolate these, you know, acute physiological changes into long-term health outcomes. Right. Cause if we did that, we looked at something like I don't know, exercise, right? We look at what exercise does like immediately after you lift or work out or whatever it is. Inflammation is up, cortisol is up, blood pressure is up. Like all of these things that are quote unquote bad are present after you work out. But we know that people who exercise and, and train more often and, and do adequate amounts of cardio and aren't super sedentary, they are stronger. They have more muscle mass. Like they have better health outcomes than people who are not doing that. So you can't just look at these like, you know, short changes after a meal and assume that like 
oh shit, this is a bad thing. And I'm going to develop type two diabetes 20 or, you know, 10 years from now, because my blood sugar is coming up after eating this tortilla. So, um, right. I just really wanted to, to emphasize that. And I, side tangent here since we're already on it, but it's just, it's comical to me because yes, like high blood sugars and elevated blood sugar over time is not a good thing. We know that. Um, we also know that like, you know, elevated triglycerides, right? Like the LDL, like those are not good chronically over time as well. Heart disease, a lot of things can happen from that as well. Um, the low carb crowd, people wearing the, the continuous glucose monitors, it'd be fun to, to check their postprandial like triglyceride levels after their meals. Cause we know that those would be high, assuming that they'd be eating a lot more fats, not eating as many carbs. And it'd be the same conversation. It's like, Hey, we know that, you know, too much triglycerides in your butt, blood is not a good thing. And you, your spike of triglycerides after a meal is very representative of what's having happening to carbs after meals but we got to just keep things into context and appreciate the big picture, which is why I really appreciate you going on that, that stretch yeah. of like how all of these things are consequential and how your blood sugar, how a lot of these things can impact other systems in the body can impact your mood, um, can kind of cause this domino reaction of other things. So people just thinking, Hey, I, I got to prevent my blood sugar from jumping up. That means I'm going to eat low carb. You're missing out. And chances are you're doing more harm than good sometimes. Um, so yeah, right. side tangent there, but I'm really happy you hit on that because I, it just pisses me off when people like hold up this tortilla online. It's like, let's see what this tortilla does. Like first off, nobody eats a tortilla on its own. Like that's dumb as hell too. Um, but it's just, it's sending mixed signaling and uh, the messaging that comes across is more fear-based, fear-mongering than it is productive and and beneficial to people in my opinion. So right, right. And then that's- that. Yeah, it's such a big, big truth in, in today's like content, I think. I think a, a lot of the messages that we're spreading are exactly what you said, more fear-based uh, than actually beneficial. And I think we have to stop and ask ourselves as coaches all throughout the world, like, are what we do, is what we're doing, is it adding how benefits to health or is it instilling more fear in people of actually eating real quality foods? Like we have to ask ourselves that question because I think there's, and I don't want to throw anybody in particular under the bus, but I think there's just a general sense of fear and being scared of certain foods, which is now translating into the people that you and I work with and makes it even more difficult. Like change on its own is, is difficult, but then when you introduce things like this, it's even more so. And so it's like a mountain to climb up psychologically, but also dealing with change in itself. And it's, uh, in my opinion, I think we, we should start viewing things from that view is, is this adding, is this adding to, to my health journey or is this becoming another weight, another job? Because I think for many people it is. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And even relating to your population of like helping people with type one diabetes, type two as well, um, to a certain extent, like they're playing the game at a harder level. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. and then you add these food rules and restrictions and things like that. It just, it makes that game that you're already playing. That's already really difficult, even harder. And, and I mean, that's mm -hmm. your nice job and, and, and to be able to make this easier for people, easier to understand, easier to live with. That's the ultimate goal. Um, but when it comes to like food and nutrition, a lot of it really comes down to like big principles and basics on what are we eating most of the time, right? Because uh, from a diet standpoint, it's like things don't change a whole lot from maybe type one. You can correct me too if, if after I say this, but type one, type two, people normal. It's like, are we getting insufficient protein? Like, are we eating a variety of, of plants and colors in the diet? Um, you know, 
how many calories are we eating? Are we eating way too much for what our energy demands are? Are we not eating enough? Um, are we getting in an, uh, enough water and hydration throughout the course of the day? Um, yeah. we can talk about even like stress and sleep. Yeah. I want to maybe keep it to more nutrition related stuff, but a lot of it comes back to how do you construct your plate? How do you construct your snacks? Are you getting enough of these minimum, you know, nutrients throughout the course of the day? Um, and that is what helps blood sugar regulation, right? Whether you're type one diabetic or you're normal, somebody trying to prevent type two diabetes or pre-diabetes, you have a history of that in your family and you want to, you know, prevent that from happening in the first place. A lot of it comes back to the big fundamental. So I'm curious, um, if you could just elaborate on that for a second and just talk about maybe big, big rocks, I guess we could say of things that you work with in your populations. And if that does translate to just you know, general recommendations that most people should be abiding by too, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that you said that because that's, that's more my thought too, that, you know, I, I think that we have certain populations, right. That have distinct ways of being supported, you know, type one diabetes, type two, general population weight loss, but it, it's, it's so interesting about how many of the same principles apply and we're not all so unique that we need this totally redesigned diet to make this work for us. And I think many people do get confused with the marketing done these days of, oh, oh I, I'm a type one diabetes dietitian or I'm a weight loss dietitian, but there's so many overlaps and I'm not saying that there's, there's not things that can be different, but there's so many overlaps that I think we lose sight of that. And, um, you know, that's especially too, true when we talk about designing a plate too. Now, you know, I think for some people that I work with, and I'd be curious of your thoughts here, Luke, um, you know, context needs to be applied too, because all of some folks that come to me and they'll be on like a low carb diet or they're, they're coming off of that or coming off of keto and they're like, well, I had a few strawberries and my blood sugar went up to like 200. And um, it's interesting what happens when you don't practice eating carbohydrates because you get less good at, at uh, processing them. And so it's kind of like working, you know, on your podcast, you know, Luke, I'm sure you got better as, as you become more custom and develop the skills. And same thing for me, I've become a better dietitian, at least I like to think I have um, over the course of years of working on it. And you just learn stuff along the way. Well, it's the same thing is true for practicing carbohydrates. When you eliminate them, you lose all the skill sets, you lose all the, the cofactors and minerals and vitamins that help to be able to process those. And then when you all of a sudden introduce those back in, well, you don't have that support to be able to process that. And then people are like, wow, my blood sugar is just skyrocketing after a few strawberries, not understanding that they haven't practiced it for so long. And they've been practicing the exact skills that make them carb intolerant, right? So they end up blaming carbohydrates. They think it just confirms their already sold beliefs that carbohydrates are the devil because it's raising their blood sugar, not realizing there's there's structure underneath that is making them not do that. Right. And so for people like that, they might need to start off a little bit on the lower carb side of things temporarily to kind of meet them where they're at. Otherwise, they're going to continue to see those huge spikes in blood sugar. And so my book actually talks about a little bit about that of 
defining your carb tolerance at the moment, meaning your body where it's at, you know, not pushing it too fast. Because if you do, uh, for many people, they're going to see huge rises, huge spikes in blood sugar, and then just go back to what they were doing previously. So for some people, they need to start off at the low carbohydrate end. And so their plate might look like maybe it's a small amount of carbohydrates, maybe it's a fourth of their plate with carbs or you know something like that. And then maybe the rest is like non-starchy vegetables and, and you know, good solid amount of protein, right? Animal-based protein if they can, because it's very usable by the body. Um, you know, looking at something like that. Now, the, the carb, types of carbs also do matter to some extent, and you know, that's a little bit more of in the weeds, but you know, looking at the carbohydrates that you tolerate a little bit better, because for many people with diabetes, grain-based carbohydrates do require insulin to be absorbed, unlike other carbs. There are actually carbs that don't require insulin, and so, or at least pieces, components of them, I should say, that don't require insulin. And so for many people, if they were to consume a lot of grains, they're going to have a, a, a much different blood sugar response than if they were to consume maybe fruit or root vegetables or squash. And so that's important to kind of understand that you might do a little bit better on different forms of carbohydrates in addition to your balance plate. So understanding the context, looking at experimenting with different sorts of foods to see what you might work best with. And then as you, as you move up over time, you might see that I shouldn't say you might, you will see that if you do it right, your carb tolerance will improve, meaning the amount of carbs that you take in will still maintain your blood sugar level at a, at a normal range. And so as you do that, you know, you'll start to be able to incorporate more medium amount of carbohydrates and then maybe a higher amount of carbohydrates, but it always goes back to meeting the person where they're at first and foremost, to make sure it's supporting them and then gradually tapering that up as they get the fundamentals, the support in place to be able to manage. Yep, absolutely. It's kind of just starting from from level zero again at, at some point, right? Going back to that trial and error kind of conversation we had earlier on, it's, it's got to be able to to stick with it. And even though you might not see what you want to see in the beginning, like you quitting altogether is not going to be the best answer for that in a lot of contexts. So um, being open to seeing things that you don't expect in the beginning or don't want to see for future you being able to to see something different on paper. And we're talking about like blood sugars and, you know, being able to, uh, to see how your body responds to a lot of the nutrition and things that you're eating. Um, right. and I love that you said, you said something really cool too. I, I know we're deep into this podcast, but I, if you still have time, I have a couple more questions. Um, um, so I, one of them being, there's such an emphasis on macronutrients and even total calories in today's kind of food environment, um, at least in like the health fitness space, uh, even to a certain extent, um, and rightfully so, right. With like diabetics and different populations, like what is the distribution of protein and carbs and fats and, and how are we getting our energy? Right. Um, but there's not a lot of conversation around the micronutrients, things like, uh, you said, um, cofactors and, um, vitamins and minerals. It's like, those are the things that make these reactions go right. And, and a right. lot of times it's like you get too focused on eating, you know, all this protein or eating particular type of carbs. And it's like, we kind of, and not that I want people to really hyper-focus on this. I am going to make that known. It's like, I don't want people right. to be tracking their zinc intake for the day, but just more of an emphasis of like, Hey, the different foods that we eat also have different nutrients within them besides the fat that we get that might stabilize the blood sugar response after a meal, um, right. or protein or change our, our blood sugar response after eating a particular carb. There's still things within those. It's not just 
strawberries have carbs, right? There's other things, but I'm curious if that's something you want people to think about or to appreciate or how that fits into your kind of philosophy of like addressing how we eat and how we eat forever and how we eat to manage these, you know, conditions, um, to just improve the quality of your life really at the end of the day is what we're going after, you know? Right, right. Absolutely. And it, it probably is not the first thing that I would look at, but it will probably be secondary to, you know, macro distribution. And, and when I say macro distribution, not that people have to track macros to get this right, but just the overall balance of what their, as you said, what their plate actually looks like from a visual perspective can be a great starting point for, for, for people. And when I say this to what I'm about to say, it's not that I would recommend people eating necessarily a certain way, but more so understanding why things work the way that they do and taking the pieces, the gold nuggets that, uh, that work for them and applying them. Right. So when we look at, you know, certain foods and I'll take, for example, within the context of, let's just say someone with type one diabetes, let's just Say that that person would have were to have like a maybe a cup of cereal, maybe some milk, and maybe they stirred some protein powder in there. All right, and let's just say that that macronutrient distribution, the carbs, the protein, the fat, is all the same to this next meal, which is maybe squash, apples, eggs, Canadian bacon, and some veggies. Let's just say it's all the same from a macronutrient perspective. If a person with type one diabetes were to eat the cereal, milk, and protein powder. For many people, it's it's going to be absorbed quicker, quicker I should say, and it's going to re- lead to a faster spike in blood sugar for that reason. So if your insulin dosing techniques aren't like up to par, you're going to be more at risk for having a high blood sugar after that meal. Um, not just that, but also that meal isn't going to be the most satiating. And the reason I bring that up is there's something unique about people with type 1 diabetes. Um, let alone like, you know, if if you were to eat this meal or someone that doesn't have diabetes, you know, I would assume you'd be pretty hungry after a few hours too, but with type one diabetes, the interesting thing is they lack something known as amylin. And so it's another hormone created by the pancreas normally that's secreted along with insulin. And what it does is it helps to prevent, uh, blood sugar rises after meals, but it also helps to satiate you after eating too. And so type people with type one diabetes are some of the most hungry people that I've ever seen in my life. And it it's partly due to the insulin. If they're overdosing insulin, for example, that can happen, but it's partly due to this amylin piece. And so, you know, the, one of the best things that someone with type one diabetes can do with especially their main meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner is eat very dense quality foods, meaning they're bulky, they're voluminous, you know, they, they're filling. I almost compare it to like, like putting like dry logs on a fire, right? For a fire to last long, you need something dry. It's going to, it's going to burn for hours and hours versus when you start the fire, maybe you start with kindling, like small twigs and newspaper to get that going, but you, you don't want to keep feeding that all throughout the day to that fire. Otherwise that's going to be a lot of work, but same thing with diet. You know, if you're feeding yourself light snacky foods that are only going to satiate you for a few hours at a time, well, you're not, you're going to deal with it in terms of blood sugar up and downs, but it, it's also going to be uh, not very satiating for you. And you're going to rely on insulin uh, to really regulate things, which often doesn't end up turning out for most people. So I would say density is one of the first things that I look at from this um, outside of macronutrient perspective, if that makes sense. Um, the next piece that I would probably look at is like, you know, the, the foods in themselves. So we know that, um, 
things like fruits and squash and root vegetables have something known as B vitamins. And B vitamins, I think, are popularized in terms of like supplementation, like you take them and you have better energy, right? Um, well, the interesting thing about B vitamins is they almost act as like an assembly line. Like, um, I don't know how they make cars today, but in the olden days, they had that assembly line where someone would put on the doors or the, the, the wheels or the steering wheel or whatever, you know, it was piece by piece and they did it, um, specialized, like one worker would do one job. And so that's what these B vitamins are essentially doing to carbohydrates. They're breaking them down. They're helping them move from the bloodstream to the cell so they don't stick around and keep elevating blood sugar, right? And so foods that are really um, rich in B vitamins just happen to be a lot of carbohydrate-containing foods, you know, fruits, squash, root vegetables, but also protein. So if someone is not eating enough protein, particularly animal-based protein that is filling, it's dense, they're probably not going to be getting enough B vitamins. And as a result, their blood sugar is probably going to struggle, right? So that's a huge piece. The other piece that I, you know, other, that, other than B vitamins that I typically look like at, um, are at like electrolytes. So things like sodium and potassium and magnesium, all of those things play huge roles in us being able to process carbohydrates. Kind of like I said about the machinery or the cofactors. Well, that's what these things are. They're the machinery and the cofactors that allow us to process those carbohydrates so they don't stick around in the blood, but rather are stored away either as glycogen or um, you know, muscle glycogen, for example, fuel for later use. Either way, it's not sticking around in the bloodstream, you know, causing all sorts of uh, problems. But uh, the, the issue with uh, electrolytes is that people with diabetes burn them up quicker. They use them a lot quicker, especially if they're having rise and falls with blood sugar. So I almost compare it to, to this, Luke. You know, if you're trying to nourish someone with diabetes, it's kind of like filling up like a bucket of water, but that bucket of water has holes in it. And so the more stressors or the more imbalanced blood sugars that they have, the more holes that they're going to have. And so it doesn't matter if you're taking all these different supplements, magnesium, potassium, sodium, whatever the case may be, if you're not able to hold on to it, it's not going to benefit you. And so it's important to, to plug those holes, you know, balance that blood sugar so that nu the nutrition that you do eat is something that you actually hold on to. Right. And I think sometimes that does that does get lost in, in the in the course of doing things. But that's my, uh, I guess, fast description of that. We can go more in depth if you need to. But uh, those cofactors are certainly uh, impactful. And if we're not eating or living in a way that allows us to hold on to those, um, we're going to have we're going to be super intolerant to carbohydrates. Yep, absolutely. Which, again, just comes back to like what are the big rocks? What does my plate look like? Am I getting you know, enough protein? Am I getting, you know, these types of cars? Am I not eating a ton of like processed foods and sugar all the time? Not to say that that can't fit, but what is the balance that I'm having between the two? And it places this emphasis on like taking my medicine, right. And being able to, um, prioritize this as a whole, because if you don't kind of appreciate the fact that like, Hey, your blood sugars has, or your, your ability to control or not control your blood sugars has so many, you know, chain reactions that can happen because of that, which again, can come back to somebody just feeling like shit, not feeling very good. Um, you even alluded to, you know, maybe some mental health kind of like, you know, problems and complications that can come if you're not really focusing and, and appreciating this. And again, not to overwhelm or to scare, scare people out of like doing that, or to feel like this is this daunting process, but just comes back to a place of like, what is my situation? 
What can I control? How can I continue to try and get better at what I'm doing now? Whatever that looks like to you is always going to be the right answer. Okay. Um, and again, it's not like I want people to sit here and think, how many B vitamins am I getting? What are the B vitamins? How many are there? Like, am I getting enough potassium and magnesium and, and sodium? It's like, all of that usually, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, comes into check or improves if you focus on some of these other things and focus on some of the big rocks and making sure we're we're prioritizing our health and keeping you know these other things in check, having a balanced mm-hmm. diet, more whole foods, um, whether you can get those frozen or you get them canned or you get fresh or you know whatever meats you have access to, whatever carbs you have access to, all of them can fit, right? But it, how does it fit for you and how can we make that work for you and your lifestyle and given your resources and in your current life situation, you know? So thank you for explaining that. I just wanted to help people appreciate that there's more to food than the energy it gives you or the satisfaction it gives you when you're eating it in the moment, you know? Right. Right. Yep. Yep. And I like the point that you, you made, like we, we can certainly get lost in the weeds of all these different factors of magnesium, potassium, sodium, B vitamins, the fructose in food, the types of carbohydrates, the, the, uh, the grains, you know, all this stuff. And I think there certainly is a time and place for certain individuals for that, but at the same time, it's not something that we have to you know, meticulously track, you know, for the most part of people are eating dense quality foods are regulating things like sleep and stress to the best of their ability, just having fun with their life. As simple as that, as that sounds, you know, for the majority of the time, that person's blood sugar is probably going to be within range. And that's what most people are looking for. Yeah. Heck yeah. And last thing I promise (laughs) for today, but, uh, uh, you just said it sleep and stress, right? And this, those two things could be an hour and a half long podcast episode on their own for sure. Uh, but, but I, I'd love to get your, um, kind of approach on how you fit those, like managing your sleep, managing your stress, incorporating that. I would include those as big rocks. We've been talking about big rocks here, things that are going to make the most impact or most difference. If you putting your energy and effort to those things, you don't manage your sleep. You know, if you're not getting enough of it, if you're managing your stress, not to say that kills you know everything that you're doing with your diet and stuff but if those aren't in check or those are really suffering it's almost like the multiplication of zero effect in some some context right it's like if you're, if you're getting five four hours of sleep consistently over time like everything else you're doing is not going to you're not going to reap the benefits of doing that because you don't have like the bare minimum of some of these other things in check first right um, right so just curious on your thoughts on that if we're talking about bare minimum stuff just like general recommendations on how to manage those things and how to prioritize them but anything that comes to mind on how stress and sleep again this is so loaded question but just how that impacts your blood sugar and why people need to prioritize that as well and not overlook that because a lot of times those are the things that get sacrificed when somebody has a new diagnosis or they're going through life with this condition that's making it harder for them to do stuff that maybe other people don't experience, you know? Right. Yeah. Yep. And th- this is such a big one. I could probably spend another, another podcast probably talking about this one or we, we both could, but uh, yeah, it's, it's such a big topic, especially when we're talking about type one diabetes in my experience. Um, one of the first things that I tend to, to look at is, you know, how someone is, is dealing with it and from the stress piece, because it won't matter if you're eating the most dense nutrient loaded meals on this planet. If your body is stressed or you're perceiving stress in your environment, it's the ultimate insulin blocker. 
you know, so if your insulin is, is dosing is perfection, nutrition is perfection, but if you're overloaded with stress, it's not going to make, I don't want to say it's not going to make a much of a difference, but it's stress is one of the biggest players that causes rises in blood sugar that I've, I've seen personally and professionally. So it's, it's one of the biggest pieces. And, and the reason why that's the case is stress is kind of this triple whammy. It's an insulin blocker, meaning the insulin that you're taking, it prevents it from doing its thing. It prevents it from lowering the blood sugar. What it also does is it depletes us of the very nutrients needed to manage blood sugar and prevent ongoing stress. So I talked about cofactors and support. Well, those are the exact things that allow us to process those carbohydrates and keep our blood sugar low. So we're losing that. We're losing that support. But we're also losing is for, for those at the extreme, stress breaks down their muscle tissue and breaks down their fat tissue, which, you know, we know muscle tissue to be very metabolically active, meaning it's something that can help with metabolism and it can help us burn energy to help to you know, regulate our body composition for, for, for example. Um, but if we're losing that all of a sudden there's less of a ability to store carbs away instead of sticking around the bloodstream. And so with that combination, we have this bigger rise in blood sugar as a result. And one of the most common stressors that we see today is, is sleep right? And so if someone isn't able to sleep as well as they would like, or they're distracted with all the things that are in today's world, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, um, you know, I don't know what other platforms are out there, Max, I guess now there is these days. Um, it's easy to be distracted on these devices where you're staring at a bright lit screen um, at a time where maybe you, you probably should be going to bed and resting. And for many people, it creates more alertness. It disrupts their circadian rhythm uh, to the point where they don't feel refreshed when they go to sleep. They don't um, they don't get the best quality of sleep. They're waking up frequently, for example. And so it's often linked to this disrupted sleep. And what ends up happening when we have disrupted sleep or any kind of overwhelming stressor that we're experiencing, well, the liver kicks out more glucose into the bloodstream. It kicks it out. And so you'll see that rise on you know, your CGM, your continuous glucose monitor in the morning where you start spiking maybe above 130, maybe it's 150, 200 as a result of that. And that continues over the course of the day for many people, particularly if it's sleep, they won't just see it at breakfast, they'll see it over the course of the day. And they're like, well, why are these carbs bothering me now? Why am I experiencing spikes after meals that normally wouldn't do anything? Well, for many people that sleep creates a sense of insulin resistance in their liver is naturally kicking out more and more sugar into the bloodstream that is um, inevitably leading to those those spikes than, than they would see normally. So it's, it's a huge thing. And um, it's one of the biggest things for people with, with type one diabetes is finding uh, things that help to support their stress. One simple way that I find um, that I like to, to do that is, is look at, you know, just get a, a view of someone's day. You know, what does that look like from the time that they wake up to the time that they go to bed? Like, what are they doing throughout the day? And for many people that I work with, they have like desk jobs or, you know, have, you know, stressful lives, especially in the morning. Maybe they're taking care of their kids, getting them ready for school, maybe drinking some coffee, uh, skipping breakfast, for example. Um, and so what I find is many of them are taking care of everything else outside of themselves and uh, taking care of themselves last, maybe if they think of it, right? 
And by the time that they think of it, it's typically towards the end of the evening when they're relaxing, when they're, they have that downtime, and then the cycle continues, right? So I, I have clients, they look at maybe what an average day looks like for them right now, and then maybe list out, okay, that that's your day right now. What is What is a good day? Ideally, what is a good day for you look like? And they might say, well, you know, I might start the morning, you know, looking at the sunset or getting some sun in my face or going for a walk or having a sit down breakfast with my family, right? Something that is maybe a little bit more supportive to them. And then I ask them, you know, what is one way you can get maybe closer to that ideal? What is one small way that you can take this day that you have right now and turn that in a, you know, one way a little bit more positive? And they're surprised by the reaction that that entails for them. It's it's not something so uh, crazy. It's not a crazy change. It's it's one thing. And so for many people that can create a, a lot less overwhelm when they're trying to navigate all what entails with type one diabetes and, and living a life, right? So um, that's one of the first things that I look at. And then, you know, the other thing too, I attract a lot of people that everything is about health. I attract a lot of all or nothing thinkers. And I don't know if your experience with that too, Luke, but um, they're, they're oftentimes lost in the weeds of the, the minutia of, of nutrition, if you will. And um, sometimes it's just about having fun again. And sometimes it's not listening to so many, listen to Luke's podcast, of course, but not listening to so many different news outlets and reading so many books and on different blogs or uh, following so many different social media channels, because it often leads to not only confusion, but also that's all you think about all day. And uh, I find that the more people try to chase their health, try to just strangle it, the less health that they actually experience. And so life is about having fun. And for many people, when they're diagnosed with a, a diabetes diagnosis, they lose that. They lose that on the hobbies that make them them. They lose that on the things that really fill them up and re-energize them. And so I would look at that piece of maybe what is one thing, it doesn't have to be a huge commitment, but even start thinking about what are those things that really light you up, bring you back energy, aren't another job for you that um, would help you to be become more resilient in the face of, of these stressors. Yeah. Hell yeah. Preached all the above. Yeah. It's uh when we talk a lot about like food consumption and, and what we're putting into our body, like the same applies for our social media or our content consumption as well. Uh, and then before you know it, you're like listening to Huberman and then you got all these, you know, big accounts on online. And then you got Flav City yelling in your face, like, don't eat this regular sugar, eat this coconut sugar instead. And before you know it, you're just like, you're kind of beside yourself because you don't know what actually to believe and what is the most important thing. So I'm a huge advocate for reducing maybe not even your social circle, obviously like keeping people in your corner, people who have your best interest at heart with them, not hanging out with a bunch of dementors who like go and party and drink every single weekend. And, and you know that you need to get your sleep on the weekend or your blood sugar is going to be fucked for four days afterwards. It's like, how can we surround ourselves with different people that can share that and appreciate the, like, my needs and not always be there themselves first. I digress with right. that, but right being able to just minimize your circle on what content you're consuming, where you're getting your information from. Are we getting it on Reddit and threads and, you know, looking at a blog online um, or following somebody like Isaac or other people out there who, uh, again, I'm not saying today, like we're perfect and, and we're this like end all be all source of information, but just really be skeptical of people who um, make things things feel like everything is black and white with the health space or with the nutrition space. Um, 
and start to to look for people like Isaac, who is very context driven, who's very individualized, who offers a lot of like nuance within answering a question. I ask you something and it's like, oh yeah, well, we have to take these things into consideration before I could give you a definitive answer or a general answer that we could work from, right? It's not like you mm-hmm. cutting out carbs forever is going to be the answer to that. So um, I fucking love that. So thank you for bringing that up. And um, I love the sleep pattern stuff because sleep we know is important for everything. Right. And I like what you said, right? It's like, a lot of coaching, at least how I feel, it's like not helping people make their best even better. It's like, how can we make your worst better? Uh, and what I mean by that is like, can, can we, can we look at what your overall lifestyle is like? What are, you know, that bucket, like, what are the things leaking out of it when we continue pouring these things in that are draining you? Um, and how can we make those baselines better? You know, could that mean, can we get four nights of, you know, seven hours of sleep this week instead of only two, because you got everything else being, um, you're pulling you in different directions. Like, can you prioritize yourself? Can you be able to implement some of these other hobbies and activities or do things that are filling your cup up more to speak or, uh, even from a nutrition standpoint, can we eat more protein? Can we get, you know, more of these different nutrients? Um, can, can we practice and, and get more, you know, uh, more stable blood sugars this next week from all these things that are contributing to it? And it's like, can we make your worst better instead of just trying to make your all or nothing mindset that best better? And that's where people have the most success, at least in my experience, um, in terms of getting a grip on their health and fitness, and then also being able to like make that sustainable over the long run. Cause it doesn't matter if you can go for a three month sprint and be perfect with everything. If the the other, you know, nine months of the year are a shit show, it's like, how can we continue to just make small steps to make this part of your normal routine? So you don't have these bounce, you know, uh, bouncing back and forth kind of tendencies with, with everything that's going on. Right. Right. And that's why I always advise, you know, context required, but typically I will advise people when, when it is crazy, when life is chaotic, to actually work on their health, to actually work with a coach if they if that's the direction that they're wanting to go, because that's the worst it's gonna possibly get for them. And if they can make it through that and form sustainable habits, it's gonna be a cakewalk when they get out of that season of their life. And so, you know, like you said, you know, with with health, you know, it's it's making those those bad moments a little bit better. You know, health, in my opinion, isn't about like creating, um, creating it in the good times. It's about not losing it during the bad. And how can you sustain it? How can you develop habits that can, you can get by, you know, the most efficiently during those quote unquote bad times so that when that less busy season comes around, it's a heck of a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of beauty in like just maintaining stuff, kind of what you're alluding to. It's like, like, can we take you in a season of your life where you might be taking steps backwards, so to speak, like in the future, or you have experience like getting to a spot and then everything goes out the window to balance everything else that maybe you're trying to deal with, right? Like in those periods of times, and that's again, the beauty of working with a coach. And of course we're biased, but it's like your health and everything alongside that is the most important thing that we have. So being able to prioritize yourself in those situations, and maybe for some people that's not going backwards when normally they would do a complete 180. Like that is a form of progress. Like you don't always have to have this like, um, you know, growth mindset every single time you're doing something. It's like, Hey, my week is success successful because I was able to maintain stuff instead of like adding X, Y, and Z to it. There's just so many different, you know, definitions of success. And I, I think we just get so caught up and we always have to keep taking steps forward. And if we're not, 
then we're failing. When in reality, it's like getting to a place and maintaining that could be one of the most powerful experiences for some people because they're not constantly, you know, teetering back and forth between going forward and going backwards all the time. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. It's, it's one step in the front of the other. It's like the tortoise and the hare example. That's what it brings me back to is like, yeah, it might be slow, but you're, you're still heading in that, that positive direction and reflecting on that. And I think that's one of the biggest keys in, in terms of like blood sugar too, that I see is, and I don't know if you see this in your clients too, where they become so focused on one variable too, where they'll be like, Oh, my blood sugar isn't moving this week or it's staying the same or it's going up. But it's also important to recognize, you know, you're you're more than just your blood sugar, right? Like health is more than just blood sugar. You have energy, digestion, sleep, you know, stress, you know, all, all of those things. And, you know, if you're not making progress in one area, you know, what is what is one way that you can see the progress that you're making in other areas? Because I can tell you for a fact, there will be weeks and will be days where you don't have great blood sugars. And that's just that's just how it works. But are there other ways that you can hold on to where you can still see that positive momentum and um, and see that you actually are moving forward? Because, you know, there are there are weeks where where that won't happen in certain areas and you, you need to have fallbacks for when that does, because, you know, it's not a linear journey to to better blood sugar. Absolutely. Yep. Just keep finding ways to keep showing up and not quit today, even though when yeah. <laughs> that might be the easy decision for you know, certain people in certain situations. So I love it, dude. I took way too much of your time today. I really appreciate this. Um, for those people who are listening to this still, we appreciate you listening this far in. I know it's a longer episode, but I think it was warranted and uh, a lot of really good stuff today. So I appreciate you coming on, Isaac. Um, take a second, put all your plugs in. You said you have a book coming out, something we talked about off air. Tell the people about that real quick. And then I'll link all your stuff in the show notes as well. So um, tell people where they can find you and anything else you got going on. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a book coming out probably later on this year. I don't have a definitive date for it just yet, um, but I am wrapping up everything involved with the book. It's uh, titled Have Your Carbs and Eat It, Eat Them Too. So it kind of bodes well with our, our conversation that we've had today. It's specifically taken in the frame of someone with type 1 diabetes, and that's who it's recommended for. But, you know, other people that are dealing with blood sugar concerns can certainly provide some benefit from it too. Uh, so if the audience is interested, they can find that on my website, which will be isaacpullman.com. Uh, so just my name.com. And um, I'll be posting updates about that of when I'll be releasing that. So, so stay tuned. Um, I also put out free content. In the meantime, if you are interested, my handle on Instagram is just Isaac Pullman. So feel free to follow, follow along. I share all sorts of blood sugar uh, strategies and, and tips to support not only that, but also overall health. So feel free to dive in. If you're also looking for something that can improve what's called your insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance uh, that many of those with type 1 and type 2 can encounter, you can download my free guide. Um, it's just isaacpullman.com slash free report. So feel free to download that in the meantime if you're looking for some uh, some reading material. Love it. Can't wait to read your book, man. It's going to be it's going to be amazing. So uh, again, I appreciate you for coming on here and uh, we'll chat soon, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you found value and enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media. If you do, make sure you tag me so I can say thanks. Or if you're on iTunes, scrolling down and leaving a five-star review would be much appreciated. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Instagram at LukeSmithRD. 
Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you on the next episode.